Welcome back to EW's Game of Thrones podcast. This is our second episode discussing the new book, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, the untold story of making Game of Thrones. So if this is the first episode you're hearing, you might want to start with last week. Otherwise, let's get a bit deeper into some of the revelations from the book and some new interview clips from the cast and the writers. So I think where we left off was the uh, the end of the failed pilot and uh, the decision to to go ahead and and greenlight the series uh, and and basically reshoot the pilot and do season one. And they kind of dove into it and they dove into it in, in a very strange way because everything was shot out of order, which is not the way uh, TV shows are normally shot. That's the way movies are normally shot. So, you know, in addition to having to kind of figure out this epic show and, and, uh, and, and get it right after this, this initial fumble, you know, they were also shooting everything out of order, which made everything all the more, you know, you know, complex and confusing in some ways. So, uh, you know, Darren, you know, was there anything from that, that, uh, that chapter that sort of stood out to you? Um, James, the this, the material in your book that's about the kind of filming of that first season, um, it really kind of brings me back to something you were talking about last week, that having covered this show so much as you did in the sort of, okay, this show is kind of actively happening now, and like there are things we kind of have to cover as journalists while it's you know happening, while it's in production, while people are seeing it, um, here... I just love how you really draw the reader back to the very different situation of filming that first season. The fact that so few people even knew this show was a thing. The fact that certainly no one involved in it had any sense of just how huge it was going to get. Uh, You know, people come describe it as a party. You know, there's definitely the constant feeling that for a lot of the major stars involved, this is their first big anything, um, you know, whether in their adult life or or whether they are just kids for whom this is this kind of grand adventure. Um, but one thing I especially appreciated about uh, the kind of look you give us at the first season um, is, you know, James, I love George R. R. Martin, uh, love his books, love the man himself. Um, have read so many things that he has said about the show and, and, and about the world over the years. Still go and check his Not A Blog maybe once or twice a week just to see what he's up to. Usually it's watching football, but that's still pretty interesting. Um, but uh, some of the, his quotes in the book, some of the stuff that you get uh, um, that you got out of him from interviewing him now at this kind of phase and his, you know, how he feels about the show is all really, really interesting. And one thing that I do love is that you're constantly aware that as big as this show was, as big as, you know, this first season was not as huge as it would ultimately get, but it's still in terms of scope, in terms of ambition, in terms of how many different characters are spread across how much space was really unique for the time. It still feels like in a way that is, you know, unabashed and teasing, but still quite sincere. For him, it was not big enough. <laughs> that, that, um, and, and, you know, that that comes across in so many ways. Uh, but uh, as he discusses in this clip, there's even one little thing from season one that I had frankly totally forgotten about that seems for him to just weigh deeply on his soul. Uh, let's hear George R.R. R. Martin talk about the hunting party. Probably my least favorite scene in the entire show, in all its eight seasons, was King Robert Goes Hunting. Where you you have four guys walking on foot through the woods, carrying spears, and Robert is giving Renly shit, you know? I never wrote 
Robert goes hunting in the books. You know, Robert does go <coughs> hunting, and then we get the word he's been gored by a boar, and they right. bring him back, and he dies. But I knew what a royal hunting party was like. Yeah. You know, there were there would have been a hundred guys. There would have been pavilions. There would have been huntsmen. There would have been dogs right. to flush out the animals. Right. There would have been horns blowing. Right. You know, that's how a king went hunting. <laughs> he didn't just walk through the woods with three yeah. of his close yeah. friends, yeah. hoping to meet a boar. <laughs> right. right, right. But at that point, that was evidently yeah. all we could afford. We couldn't afford any horses or dogs or pavilions or anything. Oh, what was I saying? Simpler time? It was. It was. You're too young to remember. Wasn't it simpler, tell me? It was, Your Grace. The enemy was right there in the open, vicious as you like, all but sending you a bloody invitation. Nothing like today. Sounds exhilarating. Exhilarating, yes. Not as exhilarating as those balls and masquerades you like to throw. <laughs> that was his least favorite scene in all eight seasons and and yeah and and but it but it's it's perfectly him uh that that he would zoom in on that 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 makes that makes so much sense and and uh yeah george um was my i i think probably, probably my, my favorite of the new interviews you know he was really candid and every time you kind of hit a george quote in the book it's like you don't know which direction he's going to go you know sometimes he's, he's he's very complimentary about something sometimes he's critical about something but he's 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 really honest and, and forthright about his feelings about things uh, throughout. One of the things that I love about him as a writer is that he is someone who is very interested in like the process of things. He's someone who's very interested in like this sense of you know what he wants to do with fantasy is often what it's certainly when he when he began writing it was the opposite of what seemed to be expected in fantasy. This sort of sense of realism, not just in terms of you know crazy awful things happening to people but in terms of you know re the reality of politics in a world with dragons um in the book he serves an equally great purpose because here's someone who knows what goes into television knows what kind of things you have to do to make something work on television but also in the process of creating a song of ice and fire was specifically trying to do something you couldn't do on, on television and I, I just think that you know ha having that voice just be so upfront and honest about the show itself is really really um as someone who uh you know thought i knew everything about the show um really kind of refreshing um at the same time james there's so much great stuff in fire cannot kill a dragon about this larger sense of, you know, season one was still very much this different time period as far as putting the show together. And uh, one thing that's kind of mentioned, and you'll have to remind me if this was something that you'd sort of, you know, discussed before, if this is kind of a, a newer revelation, but the fact that at some point they just realized that episodes were only coming in at a half hour long in the edited form um, is kind of mind blowing. Can you kind of talk about um, what that meant for the show and what it meant for actually some pretty transformative material that made its way into season one? Yeah, yes, yeah. Season one was was wonderfully chaotic on on many levels. I mean, they like they're dealing with the Northern Ireland weather system, which they'd eventually find ways to to to, to cope with that. But you know, in, in season one you know, they were having to slash pages left and right. I mean, one of the things that I didn't know about when I was when I was uh, working on, on the book that I found out was was just how much was taken out of season one that they had they had planned to do. You know, there's this one big pavilion scene with uh, with uh, with uh, with King Robert and Cersei where he accidentally, you know, strikes her and and then 
and then uh, you know the hound is asked to escort Sansa back to her room, and he was supposed the hound was supposed to give Sansa you know his backstory during that speech, but because they lost the whole pavilion scene, that then they had to give that speech to Littlefinger uh, sitting next to Sansa at, at the tournament instead, and so that's why that whole conversation happens is just because because of of a production problem. So there's so many times where there's a production problem and then they have have to pivot and figure out something else. And one of the biggest production problems they ran into is is they kept, you know, having to cut material uh, because of weather and and budget that they discovered that their that the cuts of their show were coming in at a half hour long, which, you know, is completely unacceptable for an hour long drama. You know, now it's interesting because you have shows like 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 The Mandalorian, you know, really sort of, you know, doing things like that. But at the time, um, you know, especially for for HBO, there there's there's a minimum that you have to turn in an episode uh, at because you know, the you know, it, you know HBO will 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 distribute that episode around the world and some places you know it in many places it airs in hour long slots and has to be cut in with commercials or whatnot. So so you know they weren't meeting the minimum length and so they had to at the last minute write all these additional scenes and they couldn't just write anything they had to write something that used the actors that they had left because a lot of the actors had schedules that took them someplace else after they were done shooting. They had to use their existing sets because they didn't have any money to, to shoot extra exteriors or to build new sets. And they had to do something that would work within the framework of what they already had. So you ended up with all these extra scenes, like, for instance, the scene with Cersei and Robert, you know, discussing for several minutes their 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 broken marriage. That, you know, as Brian Cogman, um, you know, the uh, co-executive pr producer on the show, you know, so rightly pointed out that those that those extra scenes that they had to shoot ended up defining, uh, you know, what, you know, you know, the way that they made the show, they ended up doing scenes like that throughout doing these like really powerful, quiet two handers between two actors that, uh, that really elevated the show in a lot of ways behind beyond just being sort of an action fantasy drama. I felt something for you once, you know, I know. Even after we lost our first boy, for quite a while, actually. Was it ever possible for us? Was there ever a time, ever a moment? No. Does that make you feel better or worse? It doesn't make me feel anything. Brian Cogman is a gentleman and a scholar who I've somewhat gotten to know through another podcast. Um, and uh, he's another kind of great voice in the book. Um, one of the things that uh, I think is very interesting, he kind of discusses the idea that with a lot of these dialogue scenes, scenes that really, you know, to me jump out as being some of the most memorable stuff in season one, they're not necessarily plot momentum scenes because they kind of can't be at all. Um, you know, as, you're, as you were kind of describing the making of these scenes, James, I thought a lot about, and I mean this as a compliment, like the Roger Corman style of movie making where it's just like, we have a set, who's here? Like, we, we got to kind of throw this together, um, which, you know, we so often approach these long form television shows now with this feeling of like, oh, like, you know, 
it's a problem when things aren't planned out. It's a problem when things don't pay off. Um, but you know, if you have the right actors involved, if you have these characters where you actually can really benefit from just spending more time with them, um, it can really kind of pay off. In your interview with Cogman, he also talked a little bit about this feeling of uh, when they knew the show was working and this feeling of, you know, after this very long journey of the pre-production, production, reproduction process, um, what that kind of aha moment was like. Uh, let's listen to that. The first half hour of episode two is essentially the Stark saying goodbye, mainly through the point of view of John. Um, John says goodbye to Arya and gives her needle. John says goodbye to Richard. Um, Kit has the scene with uh, Bran and, and, and Michelle mm -hmm. you know, giving, giving him that, that look of, of, of loathing. Mm -hmm. um, that whole segment that then culminates in the scene with um, Ned and John mm -hmm. and Ned saying, he's still, we'll talk about your mother one day. Watching that scene and seeing how mm -hmm. it worked and seeing how beautifully these young actors were working together and you felt that they were a family with a history. Mm -hmm. At the end of that, I was crying and I realized, okay, we've, we've, we've got it, we've got the show. Because mm -hmm. I knew even then that ultimately this show is about this family that is split apart and finding a way to bring the lot together again. Yeah. For me, that was always the core of the show. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things the show is about, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's what I personally always came back to and related to the mm -hmm. most. And I suspect David and Dan as well, because I don't think it's an accident that they ended the series with that montage of mm -hmm. John, Sansa, and Arya going on their separate ways in their new mm -hmm. journey. They end very decidedly with the Stark siblings. The Starks have manned the wall for thousands of years. You are a Stark. You might not have my name, but you have my blood. Is my mother alive? Does she know about me, where I am, where I'm going? Does she care? The next time we see each other, we'll talk about your mother. Mm -hmm. I promise. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. We're back with EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. You know, spoiler alert for anyone who is, for some reasoning, listening to this episode of the podcast and doesn't know what happened with Game of Thrones. Uh, season one airs. Um, it is not a world-breaking ratings hit, necessarily. Um, it is certainly not what it would become. Um, but uh, in the process of creating the second season of the show, uh, as your book kind of maps out, James, there's already a feeling that something is different. Um, one of the things I love so much about uh, how you approach season two, James, is that on one hand, 
as a work of journalism, it's almost like you're writing about the start of a whole different show, given just how many new voices now kind of join in. Um, you know, season two, which, which adapted Clash of Kings, honored that feeling of, okay, we're now bringing in a whole new s series of people here, and some people are now moving around from where they used to be. Um, your book kind of follows that as well, with a lot of new familiar voices. Um, but uh, you also discussed something in depth, James, that certainly at the time, none of us were really aware of, uh, which was what was going on with Amelia Clark as she was filming season two. This is someone who, again, had kind of come basically out of drama school into filming this key role in season one. Um, can you kind of talk about um, what uh, was very unique about her situation as they went into filming season two? Yeah, yeah. Amelia had had a, a brain aneurysm in between uh, filming seasons one and two. Uh, you know, she, she was suddenly... Uh, you know, you know, basically collapsed at, at at her gym with this like incredible pain. You know, she had to have emergency brain surgery, and then somehow, within a matter of weeks, you know, was basically back on the Game of Thrones set, which is just incredible. And uh, you know, she basically got the pass to do it from from her doctors, kind of last minute, and was able to get there and go through it and you know she talked a little bit about in in a great new yorker essay she wrote um you know about that but i i want to kind of get you know more in detail about that in in the book just to get a sense of what that that was like like for her and i was actually on on set in in season two and i saw her uh performing this scene in this quarry and it was extremely hot and and she had you know you know she you know she has normally has dark hair and she has to have the skull cap on and she has to have the wig on and she was just like baking a, a, out there in the sun and and uh at the, at the time our, our interview was postponed and then and then and uh you know and i didn't know at the time i wouldn't know for many years later you know why it was postponed and that was that you know she was really you know you know trying to push through uh, a lot, a lot of the pain and, and discomfort that she was feeling, you know, still trying to recover from the surgery. And, and one thing, you know, the, the showrunners point out is, is, is that she wouldn't say no, you know, you know, that, that, uh, that they had to be careful because, you know, she would, she would always want to go for it. And, um, and with Amelia, you know, she felt like, you know, as she put it, you know, that she got the golden ticket in terms of getting this part and she was not going to let it go. She was just going to, you know, work through it no matter what, which, you know, and th there's a lot of anecdotes in, in the book about pushing through, uh, adversity, you know, pushing through difficulty. Um, you know, it's really the story of, of trying to pull off a show that's supposed to be impossible, but usually the stakes aren't nearly so life and death as, 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 as what she went through. I mean, she really, uh, she really took it to the limit. Um, you know, James, uh, speaking as a writer who gets knocked on my side for days on end by like a cold, I've always been really impressed by, um, for lack of a better word, just like the the acting fire that, that some performers have when you read about what they had to, what they were struggling with in, in terms of health when, you know, going out on stage, going out in a movie and performing. Um, but really, uh, you know, hearing from Amelia Clark in your book about going through this, you know, horrific medical thing and then needing to go and film season two of Game of Thrones is just totally astonishing. Um, and gets at something larger that I really do appreciate about your book, which is, you know, it just seems at times like the elements themselves 
are a part of the struggle, putting aside all of the creative struggles of making the show, whether it's the Northern Ireland, uh, you know, whether they're filming in the ice, whether they're filming in, you know, desert conditions. Um, another thing that, that I, I, I really like about uh, your coverage of season two, James, is you kind of reminded me that season two had this janky side to it that, that sort of gets a little bit forgotten about in terms of the overall arc of, of, of the show's rise in those early seasons. Um, I think that uh, Amelia Clark kind of refers to it as the troubled second album. Um, you have some other people who basically had to spend the whole season in a tent or like, you know, tied up. Um, but season two is also the season of Blackwater, right. which, um, you know, Reading your book, James, I really kind of thought to myself, was this the single most like transformative episode of television of the last 20 years as far as like what television could do, what those who create television could be expected to pull off? Um, you know, Blackwater James is the episode, the first big battle episode, um, you know, the, the great showdown between the forces of Stannis Baratheon and the forces of King's Landing. Um, you know, in, in the book itself, it is such an incredible, huge Napoleonic meets ancient Rome uh, with a mixture of all kinds of things that those cultures could not have possibly done kind of um, kind of a sequence. Um, you, of course, ha had covered Blackwater before, but uh, what were some things about the filming of that episode that you kind of discovered uh, in revisiting it so many years later with the people who were involved? Well, it had been reported uh, you know, a, a lot that they had to get an additional stipend to, to film it. But, I mean, they really went down to the wire trying to get that extra $2 million and the extra time to do it. And, you know, now looking back, that's such a small amount of money uh, you know, to, you know, in terms of how important that episode was, was, but it was really, you know, as you say, it, it was a transformative moment. Battles on TV up until that point had been like, you show a lot of lead up to the battle. Maybe you show a quick glimpse, you know, of, of fighting. And then you show, you know, the aftermath of the battle. You don't actually show a actual big battle on television. You just don't do that. And they, and the showrunners felt very firmly that that they had to do that, and in doing so, it really set a precedent uh, for for the rest of the show. Because once you do that once, that's what fans are going to expect. And so, you know, they were either going to kind of level up and become this 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 uh, this like TV movie hybrid, or they were going to you know stay a show that's like you know a, a medieval drama with an occasional dragon or occasional direwolf or occasional sword fight, but without doing these huge scale you know, episode long, uh, uh, epic clashes. Um, but what, what I found kind of most interesting, you know, and, and new, um, to some extent was just talking about, um, the last minute, uh, director switch because, you know, they had a director for the episode and, you know, they, they were starting to kind of fall behind schedule and the George who wrote the episode himself, you know, kept having to take stuff out of, of the episode and it, it was getting to a point where it was getting, you know, as, as, as scaled down as, as the jousting tournament. And then that director had a uh, family emergency and had to step aside, which you know, ended up being, you know, fortuitous because they ended up getting director Neil Marshall. 
But, you know, at the same time for the production was this huge problem because they were they were shooting in just a couple of weeks and they had no director for the episode that they had successfully begged all this extra time and money, uh, you, you know, you know, to, to be able to pull off. So they really were going into it with like no battle plan and no director. And uh, then uh, Neil Marshall got a phone call and uh, and uh, let's uh, we have a clip of him talking about that. So let's go ahead and play that. I was aware that Game of Thrones season one was happening. I thought this is really my kind of thing. And I had my agents sort of contacting HBO and saying, you know, if there's any chance that Neil could direct an episode, that'd be great. And the responding, you know, the response was kind of like, uh, you know, we have our we have our directors, we're sorted, thank you very much. Um, and I didn't think anything more of it. And then suddenly, I can't remember what it was, like a year later or so, I get a phone call on a Saturday morning uh, out of the blue from Bernie asking if I'd be interested in coming to direct an episode. Obviously, I was like, absolutely, I would love to come and direct an episode. And I was, my thinking was like, you know, is it going to be in a few weeks' time, a few months' time? And she said, <laughs> she said no, it starts on Monday morning. Marshall joining the show and what he was able to do with Blackwater, to me, your book kind of brings to the forefront that it's kind of... Um, one of the key sliding doors moments in the production of Game of Thrones, as you were saying, it's kind of this moment where you go from a show like this being a show like Rome, um, which, as I think you point out in the book, Rome, which is a great show that everybody should go and see, um, kind of had to be about this backroom politicking version of Roman history because whenever they actually got to a battle, you'd kind of see Caesar go off to battle. You would literally at times, I think, just see like a montage and then you'd see him come back from battle. Um, you know, it's interesting to think of Game of Thrones really is this transitional phase where the first season is still very much that kind of a show with everything that could be great about that with this sense of, okay, we can't do this, so we have to do that. Um, Blackwater is kind of the ultimate, now we can do that moment of, you know, the battle itself the viscerality of it is going to be what people are, are expecting from us now, um, for better or for worse going forward. And certainly in terms of what that, in terms of what that, what the audience expects going forward, it, it sets the bar pretty high. Um, but I do think that what's funny, James, to return to something that I always love talking about with Game of Thrones, that even as the show was matching the scope of what's in the book, they still had to be kind of clever about how they were adapting it, starting with the idea of it being at, you know, the, the battle being at night. Um, the battle kind of being from a character's perspectives. I, I, I think that you do kind of cover in depth how even as they were trying to honor the book itself, there's a lot of things that they had to do um, that was kind of part of the adaption process. Yeah, yeah. And doing it from a character's perspective, you know, that was one of those budgetary things. It's like they can't afford these, you know, doing many big wide shots of of showing a bunch of ships and a bunch of soldiers. But you can follow a character closely as they go into battle and sort of show it from their point of view. And that ended up becoming, you know, you know, again, we, you know, once again, it, it, it was, it was a, a, a problem that became a pivot to a creative solution, which ended up defining the show because, you know, to some extent, all their battles after that, you know, were very much focused on, on individual characters rather than, than than overview spectacle. I mean, there there are some of that, in, like for instance, in in Battle of the Bastards. But you know, even Battle of the Bastards, you know, you still 
very closely follow John in, in, into the battle and, and have that, you know, incredible one shot of, 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 of him, you know, dealing with attacker after attacker. So, you know, you know, even though, you know, they were able to eventually do more, more, you know, spectacular overview shots in, in battles, you know, they, they ended up really focusing on on characters once again. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you're really talking about in the book is in a way that I, I think is very interesting, this kind of larger continuum of from something like Lord of the Rings, which, you know, w- when those movies came out, I think it was common to say, wow, like Peter Jackson has really brought this sense of kind of texture, of kind of muddy density to the story. But Lord of the Rings could still do the kind of, you know, ride of the Rohirrim where we have the extreme long shot of two armies kind of, you know, running into each other kind of stuff. Um, With Blackwater, you had something that with Neil Marshall kind of filming, you could do some pretty fantastic special effects, you could do some pretty fantastic looks at the battle, but it, it just, it had to be something different from that. Um, and I, I just think that's really interesting to kind of revisit that. Um, James, as the show was kind of moving from the Blackwater moment and what we as viewers kind of remember that being a pretty pretty interesting thing in terms of how people reacted to it, um, season three has the moment that more and more, I, I, I kind of think of as being in terms of being talked about the Mm -hmm. ultimate game of thrones moment um, which is the red wedding Um, this is something that as a reader of the book i remember there being a lot of anticipation for it in terms of like you know this is such a complete lock turn moment in the greater narrative of of westeros Um, and i remember being impressed that the show's version of it is so much more messed up <laughs> than even what, than even like what they did in the book um, yeah. for, for, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, James, obviously, you know, you had kind of covered the Red Wedding in depth um, on EW.com when it was happening. Um, but talk about kind of revisiting that uh, so many years later, because truly one thing that comes across in Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon is that for the actors themselves, it was kind of a traumatic experience. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was uh, that was a bit new. They they were talking about um, you know how messed up um, uh, Michelle Fairley was, uh, who plays uh, Caitlin Stark, and how and and Richard Madden, who who plays plays Rob Stark, and it, it was to a point where after that they decided, at least for a while, at least when they could, that if they're going to kill off a character to still give them more scenes after their death scene. So they, so they don't get like brutally violently murdered. And then they're just like kicked off the set five, five minutes later. Not that they actually kick them off the set, but, but, but you know what I mean? They, they, they wrap and they go home and, you know, to give them a little bit more of a gentle come down, uh, than, than just being killed and, and then, you know, leaving your job right after that. On my honor as a Tullich, on my honor as a Stark. Let him go, or I will cut your wife's throat. I'll find another. Mother. The Lannisters send their regards.
yeah, again, James, uh, your coverage of the Red Wedding and Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon uh, is an especial high point. Uh, so great to hear from the multiplicity of people who are involved in producing that horrible moment. And frankly, in, in the reading of it, uh, feeling sort of sad about it all over again. Um, uh, you know, there's a reason why the Red Wedding kind of lives and breathes in the larger fandom of, of, of Game of Thrones and learning that it was as difficult to film as it was to watch is um, pretty astonishing. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because as groundbreaking as, as Thrones was, you know, there are things that Thrones did early on that you would think would have been done again, but still haven't really been done again. I Like, we haven't really had, like, a true Ned Stark kill off the hero at the end of the first season, like the man on the poster, you know, you know, you know the focal point of the show. Uh, on a major series, I don't think since then. And, and and while we've had lots of you know death scenes on shows and you know mayhem killing scenes on shows since the Red Wedding, I don't think there has been one that's had that level of 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 of, of impact. You well, know, I, I, you know what you're getting at, James, is something that was really on my mind a lot reading these early chapters of your book, which is you know we we talk a lot about the influence of Game of Thrones and there's ways that that is obvious because usually what people take from it when they are ripping it off are only the most obvious things. It's the big battle stuff. It's the big massacres. It's, you know, the, the mixture of stuff from fantasy science fiction with a more R-rated or beyond R-rated sensibility. Um, but, you know, you can't do a Red Wedding if you're not willing to kill off key, quite beloved characters. Um, you know, well, one thing you kind of mentioned in the book is that Rob Stark is someone who in the book, in the original Song of Ice and Fire series, is not really that central. Um, and one thing that they did so brilliantly on the show, and this is due a lot, I think, to the performance of Richard Madden, was to make him feel like a totally essential part of the show. Um, you know, a lot of the shows that have followed in Game of Thrones' wake are just not willing and probably just don't have the bench that Thrones had in terms of an exciting ensemble to kill off characters like that. I, I don't know, it really made me appreciate all over again that as much as Game of Thrones, you know, it was working from material, it kind of knew where the story was going to a certain extent at that point in its run. Um, it, it still is quite brave to do that something that horrible to a character who could on another show live and breathe for seasons and seasons afterwards, you know? Yeah, what, what you're saying right there it kind of reminds me, uh, in terms of shows that rip off Thrones, reminds me of a comment that Brian Cogman made about a scene between the Hound and Arya, where he 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 actually ends up sort of giving some of the speech that was about himself that 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 was cut uh, from season one. Only at this point, I think it was about in like maybe season three or four. Um, you know, he'd been living in the role for for a while now, and there's this one thing he says at one point. To her where he says you know you think you're alone you say your brother gave you that sword my brother gave me this it was just like you said a while back pressed me to the fire like i was a nice juicy mutton chop the pain was bad the smell was worse but the worst thing was that it was my brother who did it Brian Cogan point out, you know, there's a lot of shows that try to do, you know, fantasy and, you know, they end up doing this very kind of fantasy like dialogue and uh, that David and Dan, uh, you know, one of the things, one of their strengths 
is that a lot of their dialogue has a very sort of humane, you know, simplicity to it um, that a lot of action movies and action shows, and a lot of fantasy shows, you know, don't really do very well. So that that's kind of, you know, another sort of difference in, in terms of Thrones versus, you know, faux Thrones. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it is, you know, it goes back to what George R. R. Martin was originally trying to do. The fantasy genre, even the best versions of it, kind of can't help but be hyperbolic and kind of hero worshipping and sort of larger than life. And so to tell a story that way, but make it about people who feel a little more down to earth um, or, or to do deeply down to earth things to them, uh, whether it's something crazy like the red wedding um, or just something as simple as having a character like the hound. Um, it gets back to the core of why game of Thrones was as we were kind of rounding out season three on that kind of ascent to the popularity that it would, that it would have. Um, James, uh, we will continue our conversation about Thrones and about your book next week. Everybody, we're getting into the controversies. We're getting into the golden years. There's a lot of material uh, yet to cover. Thank you for listening. As always, uh, you can tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Um, be sure you're subscribed to EW's Game of Thrones Weekly so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, give us a rating, give us a review. Uh, this is definitely the streaming revival uh, limited series version of Game of Thrones Weekly. But after all, there is more Game of Thrones related stuff on the horizon. Check out EW.com for more of James's Game of Thrones coverage. Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, Game of Thrones and the official untold story of the epic series by James Hibbard, our man in Westeros, is out now from Penguin Random House. Uh, get it wherever you get your books. Finishing up this week with a clip from the audiobook narrated by Fred Sanders. George R.R. R. Martin, author, co-executive producer. I knew I'd kill off Rob Stark almost from the beginning of writing the first book. Not the first day, but very soon. I like my fiction to be unpredictable. I like there to be considerable suspense. I killed Ned because everybody thought he's the hero, and sure, he's going to get into trouble, but then he'll somehow get out of it. The next predictable thing is that his eldest son will rise up and avenge his father. Everybody is going to expect that, so killing Rob became the next thing I had to do. The Red Wedding was based on a couple real events from Scottish history. One was a case called the Black Dinner. The King of Scotland was fighting the Black Douglas clan. He reached out to make peace and offered the young Earl of Douglas safe passage. He came to Edinburgh Castle, and they had a great feast. Then, at the end of the feast, the King's men started pounding a single drum. They brought out a covered plate and put it in front of the Earl and revealed it was the head of a black boar, the symbol of death. As soon as he saw it, he knew what it meant. They put them to death in the courtyard. The larger instance was the Glencoe Massacre. Clan MacDonald stayed with the Campbell clan overnight, and the laws of hospitality supposedly applied. But the Campbells arose and started butchering every MacDonald they could get their hands on. No matter how much I make up, there's stuff in history that's just as bad or worse 